When you get into a tight place and everything goes against you till it seems as though you would not hang on a minute longer, never give up then, for that is just the place and time that the tide will turn. Harriet Beecher Stowe. And that's our wonderful author this month on the Only You podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I do appreciate it so much. I thought Harriet Beecher Stowe was a wonderful writer. I'll tell my account of the first time I read one of her books. The first book I ever read of Harriet Beecher Stowe was Uncle Tom's Cabin, in which hopefully most people have read that book. But... I was young enough that it changed my life forever and made me see how ignorant the world could be at a young age and how I would never want to treat somebody that way. But it changed my life, honestly, and it made me think differently about all the different types of people in the world. In July this month is National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, and I thought that I would uh, share with you that It was developed in 2008, you know, July was designated as this month to bring awareness to um, the unique struggles with minority groups regarding mental illness. Mental health conditions do not discriminate based on, obviously, race or color, gender or identity. Anyone can experience the challenges of mental illness regarding uh, excuse me, regardless of their background. And mental illness includes emotional, um, psychological, social well-being. Um, it, it also affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps determine how we handle stress related to others. And it helps us make healthy choices. So be aware that There are certain people that have um, a higher risk of having certain types of mental illness, and we shouldn't um, shy away from getting them help if we have to. And I think that Harriet Beecher Stowe was a great choice this month for our our wonderful podcast. This is our second season. Thank you guys for... um, listening and thank you for sharing me and following me and please will you do me one favor share me with a friend if you enjoy me share me with your friend and see what happens see if they don't learn something cool or pick up an awesome read and share it with somebody else um i want to tell you that mark twain was actually a neighbor of stowe's in hartford connecticut and he recalled her last year's and this following passage Here it goes. Her mind had decayed, and she was a pathetic figure. She wandered about all the day long in the care of a muscular Irish woman. Among the colonists of our neighborhood, the doors always stood open in pleasant weather. Miss Stowe entered them at her own free will, and as she was always softly slippered and generally full of animal spirits she was able to deal in surprises and she liked to do it she would slip up behind a person who was deep in dreams and musings and fetch a war whoop that would jump that person out of their clothes (laughs) she had other moods sometimes we would hear gentle music in the drawing room and would find her there at the piano singing ancient and melancholy songs with indefinite touching effects. I thought that was awesome to include that. Uh, I think she was a wonderful reader. She changed my whole life as a kid, and then later on in life, my sister actually sent me Uncle Tom's Cabin um, to read because it was her favorite book, and she wanted me to read it, which I didn't tell her that I had already read it. But if you're listening, I did, and I'm sorry. But I did enjoy it because it totally brought me back. And it was uh, a great read. And she is somebody that's of great stature in the writing world. I do believe she was born... 
long ago. Um, <laughs> no, she was born uh, June 14th, 1811. In the characteristic New England town of Litchfield, Connecticut, her father was the Reverend Dr. Lehman Beecher, a disgusted Calvinistic divine. Her mother, Roxana Foote, his first wife, the little newcomer, was ushered into a household of happy, healthy children and found five brothers and sisters awaiting her. The eldest was Kathleen, born September 6, 1800. Following her were two sturdy boys, William and Edward. Then came Mary and George, and at last Harriet. Another little Harriet, born three years before, had died. When only one month and the fourth daughter was named in memory of this sister, Harriet Elizabeth Beecher. Just two years after Harriet was born, in the same month, another brother, Henry Ward, was welcomed to the family circle, and after him came Charles, the last of Roxana Beecher's children. The first memorable incident of Harriet's life was the death of her mother, which occurred when she was only four years old, and which ever afterwards remained with her as the tenderest, saddest, and most sacred memory of her childhood. Miss Stowe's recollection of her mother are found in a letter of her brother Charles, afterwards published in the autobiography and correspondence of Lehman Beecher. She says here, I was between three and four years of age when our mother died, and therefore but few, but the deep interest and veneration that she inspired in all who knew her were such that during all my childhood I was constantly hearing her spoken of, and from one friend or another some incident or anecdote of her life was constantly being impressed upon me. Mother was one of those strong, restful, yet widely sympathetic natures in whom all around seemed to find comfort and repose. The father was a peculiar one. It was an intimacy throughout the whole range of their being. There was no human mind in those decisions he had greater confidence both intellectually and morally he regarded her as the better and stronger portion of himself and i remember him he, excuse me i remember hearing him say that after her death his first sensation was a sort of terror like that of a child suddenly shot out alone in the dark in my own childhood, only two incidents of my mother twinkled like rays through the darkness. One was of our all running and dancing out before her from the nursery to the sitting room one Sabbath morning, and her pleasant voice saying after us, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, children. What a great mom. Another remembrance is this. Mother was an enthusiastic horticulturist in all the small ways brother john in new york and just had just sent her a small parcel of fine tulip bulbs i remember rummaging these out of an obscure corner of the nursery one day when she was gone out and being strongly see, seized with the idea that they were good to eat using all the little english i then possessed to persuade my brothers that they were onions, such as grown people ate and would be very nice for us. So we fell to and devoured the whole, and I recollect being somewhat disappointed in the odd Swedish taste <laughs> and thinking that onions were not so nice as I had supposed. Then... Mother's serene face appeared at the nursery door, and we all ran towards her, telling with one voice of our discovery and achievement. 
we had found a bag of onions and had eaten them all up. Also, I remember that there was not even a momentary expression of impatience, but that she sat down and said, My dear children, what have you done makes Mama very sorry. (laughs) Those were not onions, but roots of beautiful flowers, and if you had let them alone, we should have next summer in a garden great beautiful red and yellow flowers such as you never saw. I remember how drooping and dispirited we all grew at this picture and how sadly we regarded the empty paper bag. Then I had a recollection of her reading aloud to children, Miss Edgeworth's Frank, which had just come out, I believe, and was exciting a good deal of attention among the educational circles of Litchfield. After that came a time when everyone said she was sick. I used to be permitted to go once a day into her room where she sat bolstered up in the bed. I have a vision of a very fair face with a bright red spot on each cheek and her quiet smile. I remember dreaming one night that Mama had got well and of waking with loud transports of joy that were hushed down by someone who came into the room. My dream was indeed a true one. She was never well. And this actually is Harriet Beecher Stowe. And this is the life of Harriet Beecher Stowe. And that's the book that I chose to do today. Hopefully you're enjoying this wonderful read here on the Only You Podcast. I do appreciate you. And like I said, do me a favor and please share me with a friend. Then came the funeral. Henry was too little to go. I can see his golden curls and the little black frock as he frolicked in the sun like a kitten full of ignorant joy. I recollect the morning dresses, the tears of the older children, the walking to the burial ground, and somebody speaking at the grave. Then all was closed, and we little ones, to whom it was so confused, asked where she was gone, and would she never come back. They told us at one time she had been laid in the ground, and at another that she had gone to heaven. Thereupon Henry, putting the two things together, resolved to dig through the ground and go to heaven to find her. For being discovered under Sister Catherine's window one morning, digging with great zeal and earnestness, she called to him to know what he was doing. Lifting his curly head, he answered with great simplicity, "'Why, I'm going to heaven to find Mama!' Although our mother's bodily presence thus disappeared from our circle— I think her memory and example had more influence in molding her family and deterring from evil and exciting to good than the living presence of many mothers. It was a memory that met us everywhere, for every person in the town from the highest to the lowest seemed to have been so impressed by her character and life that they constantly reflected some portion of it back upon us. The passage in Uncle Tom, where Augustine St. Clair describes his mother's influence as a simple reproduction of my own mother's influence, as it was also been felt in her family. Of his his deceased wife, Dr. Beecher said, Few women have attained to more remarkable piety. Her faith was strong and her prayer prevailing. It was her wish that all her sons should devote themselves to the ministry, and to it she concentrated herself, them with fervent prayer. Her prayers have been heard. All her sons have been converted and are now, according to her wishes, ministers of Christ. What a blessing. Such was Roxana Beecher, whose influence upon her four-year-old daughter was strong enough to mold the whole after of the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. After the mother's death, the Litchfield home was such a sad, lonely place. For the child that her aunt, Harriet Foote, took her away for a long visit at her grandmother's at Nut Plains near 
Guildford, Connecticut, the first journey from home the little one had ever made. Of this visit, Miss Stowe herself says, and this is Harriet Beecher Stowe's words, Among my earliest recollections are those of a visit to Nut Plains immediately after my mother's death, Harriet, excuse me, Aunt Harriet Foote, who was with mother during all her last sickness, took me home to stay with her. At the close of what seemed to me a long day's ride, we arrived after dark at a lonely little white farmhouse and were ushered into a large parlor where a cheerful wood fire was cracking. I was placed in the arms of an old lady who held me close and wept silently. A thing at which I marveled. My great loss was already faded from my childish mind. I remember being put to bed by my aunt in a large room, on one side of which stood the bed appropriated to me and, excuse me, appropriated to her and me, and on the other, that of my grandmother. My aunt Harriet was no common character, a more energetic human being being never undertook the education of a child. Her ideas of education were those of a vigorous English woman of the old school. She believed in the church, and had she been born under that regime, would have believed in the king stoutly. Although, being of the generation following the revolution, she was a not less staunch supporter of the Declaration of Independence. According to her views, little girls were to be taught to move very gently, to speak softly, and prettily, to say yes ma'am and no ma'am, never to tear their clothes, to sew, to knit at regular hours, to go to church on Sunday and make all the responses, and to come home and be chastised. And that is, that means to, you know, give religiously. During these chastisings, she used to place my little cousin Mary and myself both upright at her knee, while Black Dina and Harry, the bound boy, were ranged at a respectful distance behind us, for Aunt Harriet always impressed it upon her servants to order themselves lowly and rever reverently to all their betters, a portion of the church catechism that always pleased me, particularly when applied to them, as it ensured their calling me Miss Harriet and treated me with a degree of consideration such as I never enjoyed in the more democratic circle at home. I became proficient in the church catechism and gave my aunt great satisfaction by the old-fashioned gravity and steadiness with which I learned to repeat it. As my father was a crunget Congressional minister, I believe Aunt Harriet, though the highest of high church women, felt some scruples as to whether it was desirable that my religious education should be entirely out of the sphere of my birth. Therefore, when this catechetical exercise was finished, she would say, Now, niece, you have to learn another catechism because your father is a Presbyterian minister, and then she would endeavor to make me commit to memory the assembly catechism. At this lengthy, excuse me, at this lengthening of exercise, I secretly murmured, I was rather pleased at the first question in the church catechism, which is certainly quite on the level of any child's understanding. What is your name? It was such an easy good start. I could say it so loud and clear, and I was accustomed to compare it with the first question and the premiere. What is the chief end of man? As vastly more difficult for me to answer. In fact, between my aunt's secret unbelief and my own childish impatience of too much catechism, the matter was indefinitely postponed after a few in factual attempts, and I was overjoyed to hear her announce privately to Grandmother that she thought it would be time enough for Harriet to learn the Presbyterian Catechism when she went home. Mingled with the superabundance of catechism and plentiful 
needlework, the child was treated to copus extracts with Loth Isaiah Bachman's researches in Asia. Bishop Herber's life, Dr. Johnson's works, which, after her Bible and prayer book, were her grandmother's favorite reading. Harriet did not seem to have fully appreciated these, but she did enjoy her grandmother's commitment, excuse me, grandmother's comments upon their biblical readings. Among the evangelicists, especially was the old lady perfectly at home, and her idea of each of the apostles was so distinct and dramatic that she spoke of them as of familiar acquaintances, and that's how it should be. If you were in tune with the Lord, it would be that way. She would, for instance, always smile indulgently at Peter's remarks and say, There he is again now. <laughs> That's just like Peter. He's always so ready to put in. It must have been during this winter spent at Nut Plains amid such surroundings that Harriet began committing to memory that wonderful assortment of hymns, poems, and scriptural passages from which in after years she quoted so readily and effectively for her sister Catherine in writing of her the following November says, <clears throat> Harriet is a very good girl. She has been to school all this summer and has learned to read very fluently. She has committed to memory 77 hymns and two long chapters in the Bible. She has a remarkable retentive memory and will make a very good scholar. At this time, the child was five years old and regularly attended at Ma'am Kilborn School on the West Street, to which she walked every day hand in hand with her chubby rosy face, barefooted four-year-old brother Henry Ward. With the ability to read, germinated the intense literary longing that was to be hers through life. In those days, but few books were specially prepared for children, and, and at least six years of age, we find the little girl hungrily searching for mental food amid barrels of old sermons and pamphlets stored in a corner of the garret. Here is seemed to her were some thousands of the most unintelligible things, an apparel on the unlawfulness of man marrying his wife's sister, turned up in every barrel she investigated by twos or threes or dozens, till her soul despaired by finding an end. At last her patient's search was rewarded, for at the very bottom of the barrel of a musty sermon she discovered an ancient value of the Arabian Nights. Oh, great read. Definitely can get lost in that. With this, her fortune was made, for... In these most fascinating of fairy tales, the imaginative child discovered a wellspring of joy that was all her own. When things went array with her, when her brothers started off on long excursions, refusing to take her with them, or in any other childish sorrow, she had only to curl herself up in some snug corner and sail forth in her bit of enchanted carpet into fairyland to forget all her griefs. In recalling her own child life, Miss Stowe, among other things, describes her father's library and gives a vivid bit of her own experiences within its walls. She says, High above all the noise of the house, this room had to me the air of a refuge and a sanctuary. Its walls were set round from floor to ceiling with the friendly, quiet faces of books and there stood my father's great writing chair, on one arm which lay open always with his uh, Cruden's Cordance and his Bible, which Cruden's Cordance is, I believe, a book of verses that's been around for a long, long time. Here, I love to retreat and niche myself down in a quiet corner with my favorite books around me. I had a kind of sheltered feeling as thus set and watched my father writing, turning to his books and speaking from time to time to himself in a loud, earnest whisper. I vaguely felt that he was about some holy and mysterious work quite beyond my little comprehension, and I was careful never to disturb him by question or remark. 
I think a lot of us are like that with our fathers, if we had one, and most of us do. The books ranged around filled me, too, with a solemn awe. On the lower shelves were enormous folios, on whose backs I spelled in black letters Lightfoot Opera, a title whereat I wondered, considering the bulk of the volumes. Above these, grouped along in friendly social rows, were books of all sorts, sizes, and bindings, the titles of which I had read so long that I knew them by heart. There were Bell's Sermons, Bonnet's Inquiries, Bogue's Essays, Top Lady on Predestination, Boston's Fourfold State, Law's Serious Call, and other works of that kind. These I looked over wistfully day after day without even a hope of getting something interesting out of them. The thought that Father could read and understand things like these filled me with a vague awe, and I wondered if I would ever be old enough to know what it was all about. But there was one of my father's books that proved a mine of wealth to me. It was a happy hour when he brought home and set up in his bookcase Cotton Mather's Magnolia and a new edition of two volumes. What wonderful stories those. Stories too about my own country. Stories that made me feel the very ground I trod to, on to be consecrated by some special dealing of God's providence. I wanted to tell you that um, the word providence is really important. It's the protective care of God or of nature as a spiritual power. And I don't think a lot of people know that so i wanted to share that with you and thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast and hopefully you're enjoying this read this is the only you podcast and we're doing harriet beecher stowe this month and june is another uh minority mental health month awareness month so you know racial and ethnic gender and sexual minorities often suffer from poor mental health outcomes due to uh, multiple factors, including inaccessibility of high-quality mental health care and services, cultural stigma surrounding mental health, and discrimination, plus overall lack of awareness. So if you know anybody out there struggling, just know that you could actually help them and point them in directions that there are, I think every state offers, you know, free mental health care I, I could be wrong or i know there's facilities where these people can find some way to get the medications they need or to see a doctor they need to help them honestly relieve their stress and understand that sometimes you can heal yourself and you can go forward by learning coping mechanisms you know and understanding how the body works and that you know there's like three core things that the body really cares about and that's Peace, love, and understanding. And when peace, love, and understanding, they get infringed upon by society or other people. Anytime that peace, love, and understanding get, you know, hurt or somebody feels like they're going to lose that, they will defend and get crazy and wild and they will make things happen that you don't understand because they you didn't realize that you had infringed upon their um, peace, love, and understanding. Thank you guys for listening, and hopefully you're learning some great stuff out here on this podcast. This is uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and this is the life of Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a great read. I find it to be kind of a great introduction to some of her other writings that we're going to go over this month, and hopefully you'll kind of pass this along and share me with a friend if you can. I would really appreciate it. I'm watching you guys, and I've had a lot of the same number of followers now for many, many days, so I'm trying to kind of get some new followers and build my podcast a little bit better. So if you could share me, I would really be grateful and I do appreciate you very much. And hopefully I'm teaching you some things that you didn't know and we're learning together and we're learning to grow. Well, back to this great read by Harriet Beecher Stowe. I'm a poet and didn't know it. One of my biggest fans actually chose Harriet Beecher Stowe for July, everybody. And I do want to give a shout out to that fan. Thank you for always being a faithful 
follower and a faithful listener and thank you for your input i do appreciate it it was really nice talking to you the other day and getting to know you again thanks i do appreciate it and back to the life of harriet tubman and continuing these reminiscence miss stowe describes as follows her sensations upon first hearing the declaration of independence i had never heard it before and even now had but a vague idea of what was meant by some parts of it. Still, I gathered enough from the recital of the abuses and injuries that had driven my nation to this course to feel myself swelling with indignation and ready with all my little mind and strength to applaud the conclusion, excuse me, the concluding passage which Colonel Talmage rendered with resounding majesty i was as ready as any of them to pledge my life fortune and sacred honor for such a cause the heroic element was strong in me having come down by ordinary generation from a long line of puritan ancestry and just now it made me long to do something i knew not what to fight for my country or to make some declaration on my own account. And another reason why I chose this today, because this book today, because it's breaking us into Harriet Beecher Stowe's life, but it's also almost the 4th of July. It's like two days away. So while I'm reading this, just know in your hearts that Americans do love their country and they are proud of Harriet Beecher Stowe for taking the time to write this and to leave her impression upon the world and how beautiful it is you know when Harriet was nearly six years old her father married as his second wife Miss Harriet Porter of Portland Maine and if you've never been to Portland Maine man you gotta get up there they got the best lobster soup in the United States amazing and it's a cool little trendy town Portland is and lots of uh, little nooks and crannies. You can find great places to eat and lots of wonderful lobster and crab. And just, they got it all up there. I love Maine. It's the end of the, end of the United States out there, you know, the edge of the world, but it's a great place. And Miss Stowe thus describes her new mother. I slept in the nursery with my two younger brothers. We knew that father was gone away somewhere on a journey and was expected home. Therefore, the sound of a bustle in the house and more easily awoke us as father came into our room our new mother followed him she was very fair with light blue eyes and soft auburn hair round with a black velvet baudet and to us she seemed very beautiful never did stepmother make a prettier or sweeter impression the morning following her arrival we looked at her with awe. She seemed to us so fair, so delicate, so elegant, that we were almost afraid to go near her. I wish it was still like that today. Sheesh. We must have appeared to her as rough, red-faced country children, honest, obedient, and bashful. She was particularly dainty and neat in all her ways and arrangements and I used to feel breezy, rough, and rude in her presence. In her religion, she was disgusted for a most unfaltering Christ worship. She was of a type noble, but severe, naturally hard, correct, exact, and exacting, with intense, natural, and moral ideality. Had it not been that Dr. Payson had set up and kept before her a tender human loving christ she would have been only a conscious bigot the image however gave softness and warmth to her religious life and i have since noticed her, how her christ enthusiasm has sprung up in the hearts of all her children in writing to her old home of her first impression of her new one miss beecher says it is a very lovely family, and with heartfelt gratitude, I observed how cheerful and healthy they were. The sentiment has greatly increased, since I perceive them to be of agreeable habits, and some of them of uncommon intellect. 
This new mother proved to be indeed all that the name implies to her husband's children, and never did they occasion to call her aught other than blessed. Another year finds a new baby brother, Frederick by name, added to the family. At this time, too, we catch a characteristic glimpse of Harriet in one of her sister Catherine's letters. She says, last week, and because these this book is actually um, letters, memoirs, and little essays that were scattered throughout Harriet Beecher Stowe's life, and that's what made it such a great um, opening book for this month. And thank you for listening. I do appreciate it, and sorry for that interruption. Last week, we interred Tom Jr. with funeral honors by the side of old Tom and happy memory. Our Harriet is chief mourner, always at their funeral. She asked for what she called an epithet for the gravestone of Tom Jr., which I gave as follows. In June 1820, little Frederick died from scarlet fever and Harriet was seized with a violent attack of the same dreaded disease, but after a severe struggle, recovered. Following her happy-hearted child life, we find her trampling through the woods or going on fishing excursions with her brother sitting thoughtfully in her father's study, listening eagerly to the animated theological discussions of the day, visiting her grandmother at Nut Plains, and figuring as one of the brightest scholars in the Litchfield Academy, taught by Mr. John Brace and Miss Pierce. When she was 11 years old, her brother Edward wrote of her, and this is what he had to say. Harriet reads everything she can lay her hands on, and sews and knits diligently. At this time, she was no longer the youngest girl of the family, for another sister, Isabella, had been born in 1822. This event served greatly to mature her, as she was entrusted with much of the care of the baby out of school hours. It was not, however, allowed to interfere in any way with her studies, and under the skillful direction of her beloved teachers, she seemed to absorb knowledge with every sense. She herself writes, Much of the training and inspiration of my early days consisted not in the things that I was supposed to be studying, but in hearing. While seated unnoticed at my desk, the conversation of of Mr. Brace with the older classes, there from hour to hour I listened with eager ears to historical criticisms and discussions or to recitations and such works as Pale's moral philosophy, Blair's rhetoric, Allison on taste, all full of most awakening suggestions to my thoughts. Mr. Brace exceeded all teachers I ever knew, and the faculty of teaching composition, the constant excitement in which he kept the minds of his pupils, the wide and varied religions of thought into which he led them, formed a preparation for composition, the main requisite for which is to have something which one feels interested to say. And I want to say that the teachers I had growing up, and some of these listeners that are listening right now, they'll agree, we had some really great teachers, and we were lucky because they were older, and they came from just a different generation, and they just did not tolerate disrespect, and they it, it's just it was just an all-around different school than what we have now. And we miss those days. I know we do. In her 10th year, Harriet began what to her was the fascinating work of writing compositions. And so rapidly did she progress that at the school exhibition held when she was 12 years old, hers was one of the two or three essays selected to be read aloud before the August Assembly of Visitors attracted by the occasion. Of this event, Miss Stowe's writes... I remember well the scene at that exhibition to me was so eventful. The hall was crowded with all the literary of Litchfield. Before them, all our compositions were read aloud. When mine was read, I noticed that Father, who was sitting on high by Mr. Brace, brightened and looked interested, and at the close I heard him ask, Who wrote that composition? Your daughter, sir. 
was the answer. It was the proudest moment of my life. There was no mistaking Father's face when he was pleased, and to have interested him was past all juvenile triumphs. And I've actually gotten to witness that when, well, both the times my daughter graduated, when she graduated from eighth grade, she had no idea I was flying in. I flew in, and I was the last person she's seen. When she came down the aisle, and as a father, it was like the greatest day of my whole life, watching my little girl light up at the 4th of July because I was there. And the same in high school, which was just last month. Really, she just graduated pretty much. Oh, well, May, two months. Sorry. That composition has been carefully preserved, and on the old yellow sheets, the cramped childish handwritings is still distinctly legible. As the first literary production of one who afterwards attained such distinction as a writer, it is deemed of sufficient value and interest to be embodied in this biography exactly as it was written and read 65 years ago. The subject was certainly a grave one to be handled by a child of 12. Can the morality of the soul be proved by the light of nature? Question mark. It has justly been concluded by the philosophers of the age that the proper study of mankind is man, and his nature and composition, both physical and mental, have been subject of the most critical examination. In the course of these researches, many have been at a loss to account for the charge which takes place in the body at the time of death. By some, it has been attributed to the flight of its tenant, and by others to its final annihilation. The question, what becomes of the soul at the time of death? And, if it be not annihilated, what is its destiny after death? Are those which from the interest that we all feel in them, we probably engross universal attention. And pursuing these inquiries, it will be necessary to devise ourselves of all the knowledge which we have obtained from the light which revelation has shed over them and place ourselves in the same position as the philosophers of the past ages when considering the same subject. The first argument which has been advocated to prove the immorality of the soul is drawn from the nature of the mind itself. It has, say the supporters of the this theory, no composition of parts, and therefore, as there are no particles, is, no, is not susceptible to divisibility and cannot be acted upon by decay, and therefore, if it will not decay, it will exist forever. Now, because the mind is not susceptible to of decay, effected in the ordinary way by a gradual separation of particles, affords no proof that that same omnipotent power which created it cannot be another simple exertion of power, again reduce it to nothing. The only reason for belief which this argument affords is that the soul cannot be acted upon by decay, praise God, but it does not prove that it cannot destroy its existence. Therefore, for the validity of this argument, it must either be proved that the Creator has not the power to destroy it, or that He has not the will. But as neither of these can be established, our immorality is left dependent on the pleasure of the Creator. But it is said that it is evident that the Creator designed the soul for immorality, or He would never have created it so essentially different from the body for had they both been designed for the same, and they would both have been created alike, as there would be excuse me, as there would have been no object in forming them otherwise. This only proves that the soul and body had not the same destinations. Now of what these destinations are, we know nothing, and after much useless reasoning, we return where we began our argument depending upon the good pleasure of the Creator. All here it is, said 
that a being of such infinite wisdom and benevolence as that of which the Creator is possessed, which not have formed man with such vast capacities and boundless desires, and would have given him no opportunity for exercising them, in order to establish the validity of this argument, it is necessary to prove by the light of nature that the Creator is benevolent, which being impracticable is of itself insufficient to render the argument invalid. But the argument proceeds upon the sup supposition that to destroy the soul would be unwise. Now this is arraigning the all-wise before the tribunal of his subjects to answer for the mistakes in his government. And we're dealing with this right now today in the world, in the United States. Can we look into the counsel of the unsearchable? And see what means are made to answer their ends? We do not know, but the destruction of the soul may, in the government of God, be made to answer such a purpose that its existence would be contrary to the dictates of wisdom. The desire of the soul for immorality, its secret, in it honor of annihilation has been brought to prove its immorality, but do we always find this horror or this desire? It is not much more evident that the great majority of mankind have no such dread at all. True that there is a strong feeling of horror excited by the idea of perishing from the earth and being forgotten, of losing all those honors and all the fame awaited them. Many feel this secret horror when they look down upon the veil of futurity futurity and reflect that though now the idols of the world soon all which will be left them will be the common position of mankind oblivion but this dread does not arise from any idea of their destiny beyond the tomb and even where this true even were this true it would afford no proof that the mind would exist forever, merely from its strong desires, for it might, with as much correctness, be argued that the body will exist forever because we have a great dread of dying, and upon the, this principle nothing which we strongly desire would ever be withheld from us, and no evil that we greatly dread will ever come upon us, a principle evidently false." Again, it has been said that the constant progression of the powers of the man, excuse me, powers of the mind, affords another proof of its immorality concerning this, Addison remarks, where a human soul ever thus at a stand in her acquirements, were her faculties to be full-blown and incapable of further enlargement, I could imagine that she might fall away insensibly and drop at once into a state of annihilation. Annihilation, but can we believe a thinking being that is in a perpetual progress of improvement and traveling on from perfection to perfection after having just longed abroad into the works of her creator and made a few discoveries of his infinite wisdom and goodness must perish at her first setting out and in the very beginning of her inquiries. Question mark. In answer to this, it may be said that the soul is not always progressing in her powers. It is not rather a subject of general remark that those brilliant talents which in youth expand and manhood become stationary and in old age gradually sink to decay. Question mark. Till then, the ancient man descends to the tomb scarce a wreck of that once powerful mind remains who who but upon reading the history of england does not look with awe upon the effects produced by the talents of her elizabeth who but admires that undaunted firmness and time of peace and that profound depth of policy which she displayed in the cabinet yet behold the tragical end of this learned, this political princess, 
Behold the triumphs of age and sickness over her once powerful talents, and say not that the faculties of man are always progressing in their powers. From the activity of the mind at the hour of death has also been deduced in its morality, immorality, but it is not true that the mind is always active at the time of death. We find recorded in history numberless instances of those talents which were once adequate to the government of, na of a nation. Being so weakened and pulsified by the touch of sickness as scarcely to tell to beholders what they once were, the talents of the statesman, the wisdom of the sage, the courage and might of the warrior, and instantly destroyed by it, and all that remains of them is the waste of idiocy or the madness of insanity. And remember, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Some minds there are who at the time of death retain their faculties, though much impaired, and if the argument be valid, these are the only cases where immorality is conferred. Again, it is urged that the inequality of rewards and punishments in this world demand another in which virtue may be rewarded and vice punished. This argument, in the first place, takes for its foundation that by the light of nature the distinction between virtue and vice can be discovered. By some, this is absolutely disbelieved, and by all considered as extremely doubtful. And secondly, it puts the Creator under an obligation to reward and punish the actions of His cre creatures. No such obligations exist, and therefore the argument cannot be valid. And this supposes the Creator to be a being of justice, which cannot be the light of nature be proved as the whole argument rests upon this foundation. It certainly cannot be correct. This argument also directly imp impeaches the wisdom of the Creator, for the sense of it is this, that for as much as we was not able to manage His government in this world, he must have another in which to rectify the mistakes and oversights of this. And what an idea would this give us of our all-wise creator? It is also said that all nations have some conceptions of a future state that the ancient Greeks and Romans believed it, and no nation has been found but have possessed some idea of a future state of existence, but their belief arose more from the fact that they wished it to be so than from any real ground of belief, for arguments appear much more plausible when the mind wishes to be conceived. But it is said that every nation, however circumstance, poses some idea of a future state, for this we may account by the fact that it was handed down by tradition from the time of the flood. And that's Noah in the Bible. From all these arguments, which, however plausible, at first sight, are found to be futile, may be argued the necessity of a revelation. Without it, the destiny of the noblest of the works of God would have been left in obscurity, never to the blessed light of the gospel dawned on the borders of the pit, and the heralds of the cross proclaimed peace on earth and goodwill to men, was it that bewildered and misled man was enabled to trace his celestial origin and glorious destiny. The Son of the Gospel has dispelled the darkness that has rested on objects beyond the tomb. And the Gospel man learned that when the dust returned to dust, the Spirit fled to the God who gave it. He there found that through man has lost the image of his divine Creator. 
he is still destined after his earthly house of his tabernacle is dissolved to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiable, and that fadeth not away to a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Soon after the writing of this remarkable composition, Harriet's child life and Litchfield came to an end. For that same year, she went to Hartford to pursue her studies in a school which had been recently established by her sister Catherine in that city. And thank you guys for listening to The Life of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Hopefully you've enjoyed this read. And hopefully you'll go out there and check this out because, you know, this is one of America's greatest authors. You know, these are some great people. And I do want to say that in my last podcast... I had kind of told you guys about um, the company that could record your dreams. Well, I got to thinking about that, and it's like, I don't know, it just, it's, it it makes me think that, because I was also, I told you at the beginning of this, somewhere that I had started reading um, Think Like a Monk. I started reading that book, and he said in that book that, you know, monks actually had sleep studies done on them to where they were hooked up to like an EGG machine and that they stayed um, on the same cognitive frequency level the whole time, whether they were in a tough situation or whether they were upset or even in their sleep, that their cognitive learning and functioning and, you know, even in sleep, it never changed. Their energy stayed the same. Because uh, they were at peace with themselves. They didn't let any of their lo- you know, peace, love, and understanding get uh, affected. And I was thinking this because there's so many problems with people in the workplace. I thought, whoa, it hit me so hard the other day that um, artificial intelligence is going to design in the future. And this is my own thoughts, my own beliefs, my own ideas. But listen to this. With what the technology has to offer right now right now with like neurochemical um transfer all the data they know about neuroplasticity neural pathways and how they can change um your dna and they can form new neural pathways right away instantly with um any type of you know setbacks or set forths but i'm thinking that you know they're going to create like a pretty much a cognitive brainwave assessment test to place you in the workplace. And eventually they're going to get rid of all the negative stuff that goes on in the workplace because they're going to know all your brain functions. There's not going to be supervisors and managers in the future that are in positions that shouldn't be there because their brains can't deal with that type of stress level. And they're actually supposed to be in a much, you know, different position that's less stressful in the company and these um brain you know cognitive brainwave testing machines for employment i believe will be the future of ai it makes sense to me because then you'll get you'll be able to group behaviors together that act silly or act out they won't be offended by somebody you know or like quiet people or people that are closed off they won't be offended by you know, anybody because they're also with people that are quiet and closed off and they all know that they were kind of grouped together. So that becomes like your people at work and then work becomes not work, but something you really enjoy to do. And I think that that's the future of this. I I believe that, um, I want to read to you though, about that company that, you know, uh, design the dream reading machine it's of it's the it's of japan and it says have you ever thought to record and play back your dreams like a movie certainly your answer will be no but now recording your dreams is not a dream anymore a dream is a series of thoughts or images that happen in your mind during your sleep as if though a miracle japanese scientists have discovered a method to record your dreams by means of the magnetic resonance imaging scanner A dream is a series of thoughts or images that happen in your mind during your sleep. As if... Yeah, we read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, In this digitalized era, 
the development of science and technology has transcended all the boundaries, making everything possible to achieve. Indeed, humans seem to be undergoing a magical transformation. Theory. To decode the images in the mind during the sleep with the dream reading machine, they have integrated the data into the algorithm with reconstructs excuse me, which reconstructs the dreams. Speaking of the algorithm, it can be used to integrate the data from a brain to the appropriate correlated images. The phenomena they have used is the fact that the human brain produces hormones when we dream during our sleep. On the other hand, the hormones produced by the brain is related to what we have dreamt in our sleep. For instance, when we see a rat in our dreams, our brain will produce hormones to distinguish it. Techniques. According to the studies, the scientists have used two techniques to achieve the goal of the dream reading machine. In the first technique, a person was was asked to sleep in the MRI machine and allowed to dream about and allowed to dream about something. I would be terrifying in an MRI machine. Jeesh. The scientists used the EE yeah, that's what that's what they used on the monks, the EEG machine. Readings to identify when the person began to enter a dream phase. And the next stage, the same person was woken up and asked to recall what he was dreaming about. It is reported that this process was repeated nearly 200 times for each person. The scientists have divided the collected data and discovered that the fact that certain common types of objects from the person's dreams could be correlated with the brain patterns as they recorded by the MRI scanner. In the next stages, the scientists have used an internet search engine to look for images that were similar to the objects from the person's dreams and entered the data into a learning algorithm that can refine the model even further. That sounds pretty awesome to me, but I think that I'm onto something with uh, what I was telling you earlier about how they're going to take that machine and use our AI, artificial intelligence, and they're going to find ways to pretty much diagnose the worker. And it's going to make our lives as workers that much better. And it's going to be able to put us with people that understand us better. They're, it'll understand emotional intelligence as well. Like if you have a little light inside of you and everybody keeps snubbing you out, I believe that this machine in the future will actually put a person like you in a, pers- in a position to where your light will shine down on people who actually shouldn't be in positions they're in because they're closed off or they don't understand how to communicate with people or whatever, you know, because a lot of people fall into positions because, you know, they are in the company long enough, they get up into that position because they feel that they've been there long enough and they understand how things go and that's how they get into those roles. So I think, though, that at some point that won't be the case and that they'll use, you know, pretty much a uh, cognitive brave waves testing scanner for your head. They'll put like a little hat on your head when you come in to apply. You'll You'll sign a paper saying, yeah, I'll do it. But maybe some people will sign a paper saying, no, I don't want to do it. We'll find out, but I do believe that will be some kind of futuristic gadget, and that's my thoughts. And thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. This is your host, Lo Jackson. This is a quick read by our author this month, July, uh, Miss Harriet Beecher Stowe. What a great American author she was. Was that not a good little chapter there, man? That, that just made me ready for Independence Day. I want to see some fireworks now. Boom, 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 you know. I went to St. Louis once, man, seen some of the best fireworks I've ever saw. Three stealth bombers flew in. It was just beautiful. So happy Independence Day, and thank you for listening. And it is also, you know, Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, and hopefully we can help somebody get help that they need and find a doctor or, you know, shelter or whatever it is. Because a lot of homeless people, there's 125,000 homeless people, and I'm sure it's probably way more than that now. That was like a year ago in California and they're living in communes and tents, you know, and we're talking about sending money overseas to other countries. It's like, come on, man, we got to be building facilities for these people taking care of. It's not right. What's going on out there. And it's not right that, you know, most of those homeless people are like sex offenders and, uh, mentally ill people and drug addicts and so many different, you know, people, the lower statute that need 
our help as mentally strong people and understanding people. Hopefully we can get somebody some help, you know, and that's what month it is. It's Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm trying to uh, help you all be mentally aware, too, because nobody's perfect in the world, and we're all trying, and hopefully we continue to try harder than ever to come together and love one another like we should, and I love you guys, and thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing me, and please, honestly, do me a favor, share me with a friend. I mean that. I want to see. I want to see some ratings go up. Share me with a friend. It would mean more to me than anything to see some ratings go up, or you know, my followers go up because I haven't had any new followers in a while, and I'm kind of thinking I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But come on, man, help a guy out. Thank you for listening to Only You Podcast. This is Low Jackson. Till next time.